Father, we come before you uh, seeking your wisdom, your insight, your knowledge. We thank you for the word that you have provided to us. We thank you that we are able to go through it book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse. Help us to glean the nuggets, the riches for living here and being your disciples. We ask, Lord, that you would assist us in this endeavor and bring us understanding through the power of your spirit. For we can gain it no other way. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we covered the genealogy, the deity, the delivery, the nativity, and the royalty of Jesus Christ. We didn't quite finish all of those, but just by way of review... We have the genealogy in Matthew and Luke. The Matthew is a descending genealogy. Luke is an ascending genealogy. And, of course, the virgin birth is essential in this. And he fulfilled, Jesus fulfilled both the legal right to the throne through Joseph and the hereditary right through Mary, uh, who was his mother. And both were required for somebody to be a king in Israel. And certainly we understand that He would come through the lineage of David, and that's how they count back the genealogy. And then we looked at the deity of Jesus Christ. Paul called him God. Thomas called him God. John the Apostle called him God. The Father called him God. It's implied in Scripture in several places, like when I gave you the Scriptures dealing with the Savior in Isaiah, and also in Titus, it talks about Jesus being the Savior. And there is only one Savior, and it is God, according to Isaiah. Jesus claimed to be God, the God of the Old Testament, by saying the statements, I am to the Jews. And the Jews would say, he said to the Jews, for which of these miracles do you stone me? And they said, we're not going to stone you for any one of these miracles, but because you, a man, claim to be God. And so he was definitely leading them to the understanding that he was God in human form. Then verse 1 of chapter 2 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi came in from the east to Jerusalem. And of course, we went through who the Magi were, and they're probably, they were a Semitic people, and they were from the east, and they are monotheistic. They were not polytheistic, and they probably came through the, the um, group that Daniel had set up. And they understood that there was going to be a star. Now, we don't have the scripture that deals with that, but the star would be the sign for them to come to uh, the city of Bethlehem because that's where the scripture said that he would be born. Now, with the virgin birth, as I said, it was necessary that this took place because in Matthew's gospel, it talks about Jesus' genealogy, but Jehoiachin was cursed in his line and not a man would ever sit on the throne, but legally... He was the son of Joseph who was in that line, but not physically. Physically, he was of the line of Mary. And so again, both of those, the legal right and the birthright or the hereditary right was there. It was miraculous and there has never been before, nor will there be a woman who gives birth to a child without a man. Now, if you remember the name that I gave to you for this, it's Apemop, no, I can't even say it, Apo. Metodic, apomatonic parthenogenesis. That's where an animal just reproduces without a mate. It just does it all by itself. And I gave you examples of that. And Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, so she didn't even have this particular trait in her being as a human being. It was something that God did for her. Then we went on to the Nativity, and of course the Nativity came in the 13th century. And it was by St. Francis of Sisi who set that up because he was tired of the commercialism. 
right? He, he didn't like all the gift giving. He wanted the worship of Jesus Christ to be paramount. And of course, this was prophetic that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5, verse 2 is where we have the verse, the prophetic verse that says that he would be born there. Then we have the royalty, the three wise men and the unwise king, the three wise men. Sometimes we call them three kings, but there were not three kings. We don't know how many there were. And certainly we had three gifts that were given, but there were probably more gifts than that. And so these guys are characters. There's a lot of myth surrounding them and tradition. But as we go on in verse 2, it says there, it reads, and ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And the Magi are asking this. We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child as soon as you find him. Report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now, if you recall, uh, when Christmas just a month ago was here, I explained that it was not a, a convergence of stars in the heavens. It was not some of the stars on the plane of the ecliptic. By the way, the the plane of the ecliptic from where we're sitting right here is about in this direction right now. As you look up there, that's where all the planets in our solar system, that's where they go from east to west. When the, when the sun sets, if you start looking in the east, Jupiter is up there right now and a few of the other planets are way out there. Mars is out there as well. And you can see them. If you have one of those apps on your phone, uh, the star map app, you can take it and put it up there and it'll tell you exactly what the planets are. And then you can go down below the earth and it'll tell you which planets are down there. Neptune's down there right now and we don't see uh, those particular planets, but that's where, it, that's where it is. Now, if some of those stars got together and all lined up in one straight line, how would you know to get under it? How would you know to follow it? Well, I just keep on going in that direction. But the star moved and it came over the house, wherever it was. So how high up should this star have been to know that it was right above the house? It couldn't have been very far at all. And so that's why this was something miraculous. And it would have been inside of our atmosphere. So those who try to give a natural explanation for this are just way off base. So we have these three kings. But then we have this one unwise king, Herod. He was not Jewish. The Jews hated him, but he tried to incur their favor. He was Idumean, which means he was an Edomite, which means he came from the lineage of Esau. He did not come from the lineage of Jacob. And they were cursed by God. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, there was a promise there. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And of course, the Edomites, they cursed the Jews, and they took advantage of them, and they went to war against them. But Obadiah, in his book, 
he spells out the destruction of the Edomites, just wipes them off the face of the earth. And there are no Edomites left today. Are there Jews left today? Yes, there are plenty of Jews left today. They're in the news all the time. And so this guy, this Herod, he was a ruthless murderer. He didn't like his second wife, Miriam. Miriam. Uh, he put her to death. He loved her to death, literally. He, he killed three of his sons. He killed his brother-in-law, Aristobulus. When he came into power, he killed 40 people that were rulers in his district just to get them out of the way. From his deathbed, he ordered prominent citizens to be killed so that when he died, there would be tears. This, this guy was just a nut. And they said it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. Because, you know, his pig was alive, apparently. It was just a uh, quip on his personality and who he was, just an evil man. In verse 10 it says, When they saw the star, they were going back to the Magi here, they were overjoyed, and this overjoyed is a superlative. So when they, they found out where the star was, the Magi were very happy. They went to Herod, who was crazy. He actually wanted to kill uh, baby Jesus, but he was thwarted in this because God appeared to the Magi and told him in a dream not to go the same way. Verse 11 says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and at this time he would have been about two years old, and they bowed down and worshipped him, and they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. Now, when they showed up to see Jesus, it wasn't like Jesus had this halo over his head. Uh, and many times there are pictures, uh, like if you go to the Eastern Orthodox Church, they'll have these icons. These icons are paintings that would be on the inside of the church, or they would be on the walls themselves. And you would see a painting of Jesus, and he would have a halo uh, that would be there. And Jesus wasn't glowing. He was a two-year-old. Uh, the last, one of the vivid memories I have of a two-year-old boy uh, I was talking to my old wrestling coach when he lived down in this Bonita area when I was in college, and his son was about two years old, and he was sitting down uh, at the side of his yard, and there was dirt that he was sitting in, and it's this white dirt that's down in that area, and he was grabbing it, and he was just squeezing it in his hand, and he would pick up some more, and he'd grab it and squeeze it in his hand, and then a whole handful went in his mouth. You know, he, and that's a, a two-year-old. That's what a two-year-old will do. And so Jesus, we have to get away from this thinking that he wasn't just a normal boy. He grew up as a normal boy. He didn't come out of the womb talking, and blessed are you, the fruit of your womb, and something like He didn't do any of that. He was just a, a little kid. He had to be changed. He was crying because he was hungry. And, you know, there's Mary and Joseph. Joseph is probably sawing on some wood, vuba, vuba, and he's putting in a dowel or two, and all these people show up. And what's going on here? Can you imagine a whole caravan showing up to your house. You would make quite a scene in your neighborhood. There's nowhere to park my camel. Get the people out of the way. You know, something like that was going on. But they were blessed, and everybody was probably marveling, like, what is going on here? And, of course, what they were given probably added to the sustenance that they needed because, remember, it was probably a large family that came along. 
we know that Jesus had at least six siblings, as I pointed out last week. We know he had four brothers and at least two sisters, and probably more uh, were in that family. But anyhow, it, it was an exciting thing for the people at the time to see the Magi come, and of course they went a different way. Verse 12 tells us about this. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave some orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. Remember, this guy was a murderer and he's killing his own sons. He doesn't give a rip about killing a bunch of two-year-olds and that's what he did. And so it goes on, verse 17. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, just a parenthetical thought here. This is a verse that is given in fulfillment of the killing, the murder of two-year-olds in Bethlehem. If you just read this verse before this event, you would have no idea what it was meant to refer to. And that is the way of prophecy. A lot of prophecy that is going to come to pass, there are verses, I believe, in Scripture that will actually point to certain events that are in the future but we don't know it because you don't know that it's prophecy necessarily until it comes to pass. And that is the specific case here. Rachel? Who's Rachel? A voice crying? What is all of that? And insight is given to us by the Holy Spirit through the pen of Matthew that that's what this verse refers to, and it is prophetic. So these people who try to pull out verses and say, this is what it portends, this is what it means in the future. Uh, I, I used to get a newsletter from a guy in New York, and he would do that all the time. And pretty soon I learned that, no, you're just guessing, you're, you're grabbing at straws to make Scripture mean something. You're torturing Scripture to get it to say what you want it to say. And we have to be careful about doing that. So the prophecy that comes to us, oftentimes we don't know that it is prophecy until after It has had its fulfillment. Going on, verse 19. And Herod died, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophet, he will be called a Nazarene. If you look up which prophet said this, you can't find it. It's not there. The Jews had oral traditions of what some prophets have said, and they would pass down those traditions. Some of those traditions have been lost. Some of those stories have been lost. 
But there was definitely a prophet that said that. We just don't know who it was. And there is some twisting of scripture, like in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11, it talks about that Jesus is going to come up from the root of Jesse and he's going to be this branch. And they, they try to make this connection that this branch is more like a twig, which is weak and it sounds like Nazarene. And therefore Jesus is going to the town of Nazareth that is like a weak twig, and that's why he's called a Nazarene. And I read that, I go, oh, come on. I, you know, it's just, there was a prophet that said he was a Nazarene. We don't have the information. And so we don't want to say that, well, there's a prophet. Well, there was, but we don't want to say verbatim we know who that was. We don't know who it was. And so a prophecy was given that we have no idea where it came from, but they knew about it back at the time of Jesus. Now, it is interesting when you look at this. Nazareth, in, in our community here, I mean, if you wanted to get a city that would be like Nazareth at the time of Jesus, or a village that would be like the village in the time of Jesus, that Nazareth, you could probably compare it to Rainbow. Guatai. Name another one. Descanso. Yeah, what is there? Three buildings in Descanso? I mean, and you would say, a prophet is going to arise from Descanso. And you say, can anything good come from Descanso? You know, and, and well, yeah, something good can come from Descanso, just like something good came from Nazareth. It was just this weak little piddly town that was there and it was hardly worth even taking a notice to and that's where the god of the universe decided to put his tent so to speak he was going to live in this little one horse town that nobody really recognized whatsoever very obscure but then as we get into the next chapter we have a nazarite and you know, we have this um, delineation of verses and chapters. Well, they didn't have that back then. And you can kind of see a little bit of connection. I don't want to be dogmatic on this, but Jesus, who was God over all, went to the town of Nazareth because his father Joseph decided to settle there because of the dangers that were about. And so he would have grown up in obscurity. And then there was this man named John the Baptist who shows up that he's told from birth, do not cut his hair. Let that hair just grow. By the time he was of age, he was around Jesus' age. He was 33 years old or 30, 30 to 33 years old in there. Jesus was crucified at age 33. So he was six months older than Jesus. And so he is at the same age. How long can your hair grow by age 33 if you never cut it? I mean, you would have this mop. That's what my dad used to call it. Look at that mop. Get that thing cut you know it would just be a mountain of hair i don't know if he had dreadlocks or not but it was a mountain of hair kind of wild and as we'll get into the description of him he wore camel's hair and a leather belt being a priest i'm sure he had a beard right probably he everyone else would have had short hair but he would have had long hair and a beard and what did he eat bugs he ate bugs he ate grasshoppers and grasshoppers with what? Wild honey. And so if you've ever seen somebody with a really big beard and they eat honey, 
and grasshoppers? Can you get this in your mind already? Oh, a little leg snack for later. Just pull that thing right out. And, you know, it, the guy was a wild man. You would look at him and he probably showered once a week whether he needed to or not. You know, he, he was just, and I'm sure he was clean, but it, you know, he wore camel's hair. Camel's hair is not like velvet. Camel's hair is like sandpaper and needles. And you put that thing on, and he was rough and tough, and he'd cinch up that leather belt, and he was a preacher out there too. And he started, you brood of vipers! You know, the Pharisees would show up, he'd just get down their throat on them. He would not pull any punches whatsoever. My kind of prophet. He would just get out there and say the way things were. And he encouraged the people to repent. He was a voice of one crying in the wilderness. He went out into the Judean wilderness. If you go down from Israel or down from Jerusalem, down to the area of Jericho. And from Jericho, if you go directly across, you would run into the Jordan River. And it's in that vicinity somewhere in there that they believe John the Baptist baptized Jesus over there. And so that's where he lived. We don't know if he lived in a hut or a building or what he lived in, but he had nothing. If you're eating bugs, you're not going to the store and buying anything. You're just, you find some honey. Oh, honey, there we go. Oh, some grasshoppers. And you, you carry it back with you and you eat it. You know, the, the honeycomb, that type of thing. And so John the Baptist was quite a character. You know, you wouldn't want to uh, cross swords with this guy as far as being a prophet of God. The Pharisees and the Sadducees did not stand a chance. And so here you have this guy who has taken a vow of a Nazarite. He couldn't have any wine. He couldn't have any grapes. He couldn't have any skins of grapes. He couldn't eat any grape seed. He could have nothing, nothing at all that was considered part of the vine. He couldn't cut his hair. And he dedicated himself all his life to the Lord. And he was a mighty prophet of God. Matter of fact, there was no prophet greater than John the Baptist up until that time. He is actually the last prophet of the Old Testament. Jesus shows up and Jesus ushers in the New Testament. And Jesus even said that of, of men born to women, there is no greater than John the Baptist. He was it. And there's reasons for that that we'll get into and so you have, this, you have this comparison and contrast between Jesus, the obscure Nazarene, and then you have this prophet who came in the power, the spirit of the Lord, and he proclaimed that the Messiah was coming. Now this idea of being a, a Nazarite, it comes from Numbers chapter 6, and it was somebody who was completely dedicated to God in all ways, just pulled out all stops. And it could have been for a period of time that you took a vow of a Nazarite, but in John's case, it was for his entire life. Now, being a priest also, if you remember, his father was a priest, and so was his mother. They would have come from the line of the Levites. And what was the job of the Levite? It was to offer a sacrifice to God. He would present it at the temple, and then they would sacrifice it. He shows up, being a Nazarite, who does he present to the world? Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. It says specifically, for the Nazarite, a year-old male lamb without defect for the burnt offering. He was to present that. And if you take a little allegorical license or metaphorical license in this, you can see that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that had no blemish whatsoever. He was also to offer 
a grain offering, bread. And by the way, when they make this grain offering, they were to make the, out of the finest flour and they were to fix it without yeast. This is what the Nazarite was supposed to do. Make it without yeast. In other words, he'd have this matzah and he would create that and he would offer that to the Lord, or to the, the temple, to the Lord as an offering. And he also had to offer a drink offering, which was wine. So you see the lamb, you see the bread, you see the wine that the priest is offering to God for the sins of the nation. Now, did he actually do that? No, but that's what the vow of the Nazarite was. But he is the one that ushered in all of this. He was the one, and this is what one of the things that made him the greatest. And by the way, what constitutes greatness in the eyes of the world? Uh, if you were to take inventory now, who would you say is the greatest person in the world right now? Who would that be in your mind? You, you have a couple of choices that are there. Now, you can take a political figure. You can take, what's his name, Trudeau up in Canada. You go, oh, he's or the French guy over there, or May, or Donald Trump, or Hillary Clinton, or maybe it's Katy Perry. Maybe she's the greatest person in the world, or it's Kim Kardashian. Maybe she's the greatest person in the world. There's somebody who is the greatest person in the world that you would say, okay, I think that they're great. And how do you judge that? You would judge that by, well, what do they know? What have they accomplished? Maybe what do they look like? If you look at People Magazine or Self or something like that, or Glamour Magazine, whatever they may be, it's going to be somebody who's really great because of certain criteria. For instance, what if they were the most humble person on the face of the earth, the Dalai Lama? You know, is he the most humble person on the face of the earth? Is he the person that we're supposed to look to that is one of the greatest people? Well, Moses was the most humble person on the face of the earth, according to the Lord in Scripture. What about the wisest? Maybe if it's the wisest person on the face of the earth, maybe like King Solomon. God said of him in 1 Kings chapter 3, uh, when he asked, what would you like me to do for you? And he asked for wisdom. He says, I will give you wise and discerning hearts so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. So Solomon was a leader. He would have been the greatest man in the world, had the most wise heart that God had given to him. So that we can measure by that. Either it's humility or it's wise. What about the strongest? Uh, the Rock. I think he has a movie out now. He's, he's pretty strong. He looks, he looks pretty strong. I don't know if it's in strength or smell, but he's pretty strong. You know, he gets out there. He has some muscle to him. Is that what makes somebody one of the greatest people in the world? What about handsome? What if he's the best-looking person out there? Now, for you ladies, you can probably pick somebody who's best-looking. Patty would pick me. But if there's, any, if there's anybody else who is out there that is really handsome, you know, you get somebody in your mind and... Oh, yeah, they're really handsome, and, and maybe it's Brad Pitt, but everything else in his life makes him ugly. But maybe it's just his Goldilocks or whatever it is that makes him the greatest man in the world as far as looks are concerned. Well, what about beauty? By the way, handsome men. Who are the handsome men in the Bible? You guys recall who they are? It's like King David. He was handsome. He was ruddy. He, he, he was a uh, um, ginger. He was um, a redhead is what he was. 
And the Bible said he was handsome. He was a handsome redhead. You know, and then you have Absalom. Now he was a guy that had a ton of hair. He had, he had Fabio, you know, he'd flick that thing around. He had a ton of hair that was up there. He was called a handsome man. He was good looking. And there are several other men that are talked about being very good looking inscription at an uh, inscripture at Anijah. Uh, who was also born to Bathsheba. He was a handsome guy. And when the Bible calls somebody handsome, they were handsome. I mean, they were well-built, chiseled, everything. Pearly whites, you know, Solomon, he was a handsome guy. If you read the Song of Solomon, uh, the woman was just fawning over Solomon, his his bride, his wife. I mean, she couldn't say enough about him. The pillars of marble for legs, you know, and and uh, it was just... It was a love fest is what it was. So there are definitely some handsome people, and you would have pointed to them saying, they are the greatest in the kingdom of Israel. Maybe not all the world, but at that time in Israel. Well, what about the women? Who are the beautiful women in Scripture? Uh, Sarah, what was she, 80 years old? A raging beauty. Now, I I mean, I want to use superlatives. She was a raging beauty. Abraham was so concerned that she would be taken away by somebody because she was so beautiful at 80. At 80 years old. And you read that in scripture, you go, really? 80? What did she really look like? She was a beauty queen. She was Miss Universe. Everybody just loved her. What about Abigail? Remember Abigail? She was a wife of David. Remember? Became a wife of David. But anyhow, she was called beautiful as well. Rebecca? She was called beautiful. Leah? She was called beautiful. I mean, these were stunning Beauties, and we're not even given a description about Eve. She was the only perfect woman that ever lived, right? And she was probably just hugely beautiful. Does that make you the greatest in the world? It doesn't. Does the strength make you the greatest? No, it doesn't. Does the wisest make you the greatest? No, it doesn't. But Jesus said, specifically the verse reads, I tell you the truth, among those born of women... There has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He was the greatest up until the time Jesus was born. So what made him the greatest? Was it the camel hair cloak? Was it the eating of bugs and honey? I know that's appealing to women when you eat bugs. What was it specifically that made him so wonderful. You know, some of the qualifications he had. He was brought up in a third world country. We don't know if he had any education. I'm sure he did in the scriptures. His position. John was in a low position. He didn't have wealth. Not if you're eating bugs. His bloodline was priestly. Okay. Wealth. He was poor. He had nothing. Power. He carried no weapons. Strength. None of his own. It was the Holy Spirit's. So John the Baptist, let me read about him in Matthew chapter 3 here. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And this is out of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 that's being quoted. John's clothes were made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. And by the way, Every time I come across this, I have to mention it. If you walk to the uh, old Presbyterian church here on the corner, and you look at the trees that are around that, those trees are called, uh, the Latin name is Sertona Sil- Sil- 
siliqua, I can say it, and it's called a carob tree. That's where we get carob, the substitute for chocolate. And you get those long carob beans. And some people think that those are called, it's called a locust tree. That bean is called a locust bean. And they will say he ate locust bean and honey, which means his diet was chocolate. If you ever grab a locust bean and you try to bite into it, you're going to break your teeth. It's like concrete. You cannot do it. You have to pulverize it and grind it. And you think John was going to sit out there and grind up his carob and have chocolate every day? What a diet, you know? Serve the Lord in chocolate all day. No, he ate bugs because there's protein in bugs. It sustained him. And so this idea of eating locusts that is coming from a fruit of a tree, it is not true. Verse 5 says, people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So what made him so great? It was definitely the man, but more importantly, his message. It's who he was as far as being a prophet that would usher in the Messiah. His birth was miraculous. We know that he was a son of a priest and his father couldn't speak because he had seen a vision telling him by the angel Gabriel that his son would be born and he didn't believe it. Give me a sign. He goes, because you didn't believe me, you're going to go out from this place and you won't be able to speak. And of course he couldn't speak until it came to the naming of his son John and it was a miraculous naming. And in Israel, the prophets had been silent for 400 years and here... He comes and God is starting to move again because the Messiah is coming. Now going on, he was also the man who prophesied what was to come as far as the forerunner being Jesus. He prophesied that this would happen. He stood up in Israel. He was the one speaking after 400 years. And he said, this is it. Now when it came to the camel hair and the preaching and the honey and the locusts and all of that, there's a figure in the Old Testament that he was like. And we know him as the other greatest prophet in the Old Testament who will probably show up at the end of time when the second coming of Christ comes. He will probably be one of the two prophets that show up in the book of Revelation. Do you guys know who that is? Elijah, you're right. Elijah, it says in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, he was a man with a garment of hair and with a leather belt around his waist. I wonder if he ate bugs as well. Yet he was just like Elijah, and Elijah was a powerful prophet. Now after him came Elisha, and he had twice the blessing that Elijah had, but Elijah was a powerful prophet, and he never died. He was taken up to heaven in a chariot, right? But John the Baptist, he did die. He lost his head because Herod, and he wanted to please his uh, daughter or his wife's uh, daughter and it you know is just it was just a mess but he is a representation of Elijah from the Old Testament Jesus even confirmed this Matthew chapter 17 verse 11 says to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things but I tell you Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him but have done to him everything they wished in the same way the son of man is going to be is going to suffer at their hands. And so this is the idea that um, John the Baptist 
was Elijah, the forerunner that would come before the Messiah shows up. And I believe (coughs) that it was John the Baptist who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but at the end, it's going to be Elijah. I I firmly believe that. I think the other one is probably Moses that is going to be there just because of the miracles that these two prophets will perform in the end times. They are remarkably similar to what these two prophets performed during their life. And on top of that, who are the two prophets that showed up at the transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. Those two showed up. So we have some hints from Scripture. And maybe it's one of those Scriptures that we've been given that we don't really know if that's exactly what's going to happen until it happens. As I was saying, a voice crying in Rama. We didn't know that that applied to the death of the two-year-olds. Just like Moses and Elijah are showing up in the Mount of Transfiguration, maybe that portends to them showing up also at the end of time when the Lord comes back. And so he went out in the spirit and power of Elijah, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 17. And Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 also says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So that's talking about John the Baptist. He has shown up to the temple there. Now, the message that he had, and I'm starting to run out of time here, but the message that he had was one of repentance. Now, I've talked about repentance before. What is repentance? Many people believe that if you just go to a crusader, you walk forward in an altar call, that you give your life to Christ, that you accept him into your heart. Nowhere does scripture say, accept Jesus into your heart. It says the Holy Spirit will come and live inside of you, but it doesn't encourage us, pray to accept Jesus into your heart. And you go, where exactly is that? He's in there somewhere. It's not like that. Jesus calls us to repent. If we don't repent, we don't come to him. We don't accept him. That repentance is a sign that we have changed. Remember, it is a change of heart, a broken and a contrite heart I will not despise. It is a change of mind, and it is a change of action. There must be those three components to repentance if there is not i dare say the conversion is questionable if somebody says ah you know i don't really need to follow everything the lord said really which one do you want to blot out which which commandment would you like to say that one doesn't apply which one in the new testament and there are more commandments in the new testament than the old testament which one do you want to just say i'm not going to do that I'm not going to worship. I'm not going to uh, give of myself and my time. I'm not going to give of my resources. I'm not going to pray. I'm I'm not going to serve inside the church or outside the church. I'm not going to deliver the gospel. I'm not going to teach. I'm not going to encourage. Which one do you want to blot out and say, I'm not going to do that? Well, obviously, you haven't had a change of mind and a change of heart. The heart has to say, Lord, how can I not do this? And you are moved in your change of mind, to do for the Lord. It's a a process. There's some people who go out of the gate and they are a flaming horse. And they just put everybody on fire and destroy a lot of things out there. They get saved and they don't know what to do. That's why scripture says, zealousness without knowledge is not good. Zealousness with knowledge 
is good. So you can be on fire for the Lord. You ever hear about those people that are on fire for the Lord? Oh, they're just, oh, they're just burning for the Lord. Well, don't cause too much damage in your burning. You know, you want to temper that fire. It, it's, I've mentioned this before, a white man's fire. A white man's fire is so hot, you can't even get next to it. And if you get close to it, you start to singe everywhere. And you have to get back about 20 feet and just let the thing blaze. But if you have a nice little fire burning there, people come up and warm. Hey, was it cold this morning? Did you turn on? I know last night I had my little $19 heater. Click that thing on and go, oh. Patty got into the car. She punched the button on the seat. Oh, the heat coming up. And we like to get that heat. And that's what we're supposed to be like. We're not supposed to be so on fire that people cannot come up to you and talk to you and you're going to hell. No, that's oh yeah, I guess I am. See you later. You know, you don't want to do that. You want to use wisdom, let your speech be seasoned with salt, and that's part of the repentance process. And going through discipleship, he calls us all to be discipleship. Uh, through discipleship, he or a disciple, he calls us into that relationship. If we say, I'm not gonna have that relationship, well, you don't have it then. If you're not going to be submissive to Christ, how do we know those who belong to Christ? First John says, those who keep his commands. If we don't keep his commands, now let me give it a parenthetical thought. Who in here has kept all the commands? Where's Nate? <laughs> no one has kept all the commands. I mean, we fail over and over. And Paul said in Romans chapter 7, the things I want to do are not the things that I do. The very things I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. And he laments it and he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, I buffet my body. Was it Jim Carrey who beat himself up in the bathroom or something? The liar, liar, just, you know, something like that. What do you, how do you reconcile these two things? The person who falls, they know that they've fallen. They turn to Christ and they, they say, Jesus, will you please extend to me your mercy and your grace? I constantly get it wrong. I want to get it right. And he goes, you're forgiven. Get up. Keep walking. The righteous man falls seven times and seven times gets right back up. And for those of us who see somebody who is caught in a sin or fallen, what do we do? You sinner. You can't be in church. Get out of here. What do you think? We don't do that. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says, those who are caught in a sin, restore them gently. Work with them. But what if they say, yeah, I'm not going to do it. Don't even talk to me about this. I'm not going to have a discussion with you about this. You know, it's my own thing and I'm dealing with it with the Lord, okay? No, it's not okay because it affects the whole body. And all of us, you know, and this is the most difficult thing in the Christian walk. Just learning to walk as Jesus walked. But remember, the grace and the mercy. You know, as little children, if you have a father that's abusive, the child doesn't want to go up to the father and ask for help, or he's fearful that he'll be disciplined all the time. Kind of like that family up in Paris, 13 kids chained to their beds. I mean, the one had to escape their own parents. You know, and sometimes we present God like that. And God is just, he's not safe, but he is loving. And that comes from um, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, where the Aslan is compared to Jesus. You know, he is, he is good, but he's not safe. He's not safe because he is the God of judgment. And there is judgment 
awaiting those who will not repent. And God knows our frailties. He knows our, our sins. He knows our deepest, darkest secrets. And as long as we come to him and say, God, I am sorry for this, he forgives us. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I, I'm out of time here, but, you know, if you're dealing with something and you're just saying, God, I, I just don't know how to overcome this. I, I just don't know what to do. You need to understand and apprehend the fact that God's grace is bigger than any sin that we possess or possesses us that we have been chained with. And all we need to do is go to him and say, Jesus, will you please forgive me? And he extends to us his grace. And, you know, some of those pictures that you see in the Christian bookstores where Jesus is hugging the individual or in the um, uh, Pilgrim's Progress where the man is carrying the burden of sin and it just falls off. And God actually is able to take the guilt of that sin away. And he goes... I know you're a sinner. I know you struggle with this. I know you're going to end up being perfected. Until then, persevere. Just continue. Get up. So may the Lord's blessing be upon you. Do not be self-condemned. All you have to do is turn to Christ, and Christ will forgive you the sins that you have committed. And it should be a daily process where we turn to him and ask for that healing, that helping, that mercy, and that grace that only he can provide. Every other religion says you have to work for it. This one, it's given to us freely by his grace. Afterwards, if you need prayer, see me or Eric or Dustin or uh, Mercedes or any one of the leaders, the women, uh, Sandy, uh, who's in there, Jennifer, anyone else. If you need some prayer, just approach one of us and we'll pray for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your abundant mercy. And although John was just an on-fire prophet of yours, we know that he spoke of you, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Help us to be bold like him, Lord. Proclaim your truth. But help us to walk, Father, in the ways of your Son, Jesus, just as he walked. And we freely accept after our confession, Lord, your grace and your mercy. Please restore us. Lift us up. Use us for your purposes. In Jesus' name, and the church said, Amen. Amen.